Hi, David Finkel. Welcome to Cable. Hi, Bill. Great to be here. David Finkel is the editor of the journal Against the Current. He's a prolific writer, hundreds of pieces on U.S. and international politics, knowledgeable, thoughtful, cogent analyses of U.S. imperialist machinations, especially in the Middle East and particularly Israel-Palestine, in which he is very critical of the Zionist project and its U.S. partner. So, David, tell us about Palestinian life and what Human Rights Watch and many others have relentlessly designated an Israel apartheid state. How it could even get worse with the election, that's my hypothesis at least, and I think yours, which of course was a bogus election because less than a fifth of the adult Palestinians governed have a right to vote. That election was won by religious Zionists, nationalists, right-wing, avidly racist, and now are in charge of ministries that now control the 5.3 million people in the West Bank and Gaza, and uh, somewhat under sort of different auspices, but control them, and treats the 1.7 million Palestinians within the Green Line, which is Israel's original boundaries, treats them as second-class citizens. So, David, tell us why it was designated as an apartheid state and how it's likely to get worse. Right. Well, the reports by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, now use the term apartheid in the important sense that you have two populations in the same territory living under different laws, different sets of laws, de facto in practice and de jure in official law. For example, in the occupied territories, the occupied Palestinian territories, the West Bank, it's notorious that there are separate roads where Israelis travel without any restriction, without actually ever seeing the real face of the occupation, whereas Palestinians take hours and hours to get through checkpoints to get, you know, just a few miles from Ramallah to Jerusalem, if they're even allowed entry to Jerusalem. Now, this is all very well documented and has been consolidated for years under Israeli governments of all stripes. So the question is, what's different now? What's different now is that the newly elected government, and as, as you point out, the five million or so folks in the occupied Palestinian territories have no vote in this government that rules and ruins and destroys their lives. The new government is a coalition. It's a, well, all Israeli governments are coalitions. This is a kind of a mashup of the traditional right-wing Likud party, that's Netanyahu's party, with several religious parties. And the most important of the new religious parties is a get-together that Netanyahu put together in order to get himself back in power. It's called religious Zionism. And within religious Zionism, you have really very outspoken supporters of ethnic cleansing, of the killing and expulsion of Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens of Israel. These are names like Itamar Ben-Gavir, and Bezalel Shmotrich, which you'll be hearing a lot more about, I think, in the news. And they have been given ministerial power over the administration of the occupied territories, over border and police, which means that the level of brutality will escalate. The level of brutality is already very high. Let me say this for people who aren't really into the inside baseball of Israeli politics. 
Netanyahu is dependent on these really, really extreme right-wing religious Zionist fanatics in loosely the same way, similar way, that Kevin McCarthy's power as the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress depends on the support of what I call the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of the Republican Party. So they get all kinds of plum committee assignments, for example. Well, in Israel, this is roughly a similar position. Netanyahu and the extreme religious Zionists don't really like or respect each other. They despise each other for various factional reasons, but they are dependent on each other in this sort of marriage of convenience. And this is what, of course, has also soaked a lot of opposition, you know, tens of thousands of people rallying in the streets every week, particularly against the government's move in Parliament to strip the Supreme Court of its power to declare laws unconstitutional in Israel, etc. So this is what the conflict is. Let me say something about the term apartheid, which is partly accurate and partly not. It's accurate in the sense I described. Separate laws, separate systems for populations living in the same territory. But apartheid in South Africa, the classic case, had two central features. One was as a fiendish system of control over black African labor. And in Israel, although Palestinian labor is certainly exploited, Israel is not dependent on Palestinian labor in the way that South Africa was and is dependent on black labor. That's one difference. The other difference is that apartheid in South Africa was designed to wipe out white poverty by putting whites in the supervisory positions and so forth. And it did so. In a generation, white poverty in South Africa was basically eliminated. In Israel, they've had their privatization neoliberal revolution, which uh, has not certainly eliminated Jewish poverty in Israel, although Arab poverty in Israel is much worse. So there's those differences, but also the similarities. Yeah, let me say a few words to make it clear how total the control of not just the West Bank, but also Gaza is. Israel controls all imports and exports of everything, including industrial equipment, building materials, food, and they only allow a little bit in. It's impossible to create. Farms are not allowed to make their own deals with European people who want to sell oranges. Israel does it. Israel only allows a little bit. Israel doesn't allow homes to be built, especially within Israel proper, the Green Line, but also in the West Bank. In fact, people can't build almost anything because concrete is very strictly regulated to make sure that the Palestinians can't live. The entire system is meant to strangle the Palestinian people and force them to join the already large Palestinian diaspora. And there are so many other collective punishment and the destruction of homes of anybody that Israel thinks, um, if any family member is identified by the Israeli authorities who have all the latest surveillance equipment, they sell it, in fact, their great equipment around the world. The list of atrocities, it seems to me, is just enormous. The official rules governing shooting people, shooting kids with stones, 
The old rule used to be you have to shoot with non-lethal weapons. The new rule is going to be you can shoot on sight. It's my understanding that many of the religious people are pushing for that. David, it's one atrocity after another, it seems to me. Water is controlled by the Israelis and the aquifers that some Palestinian villagers and farmers have to use is going to be depleted. The attack on, and this is by most of these things began with the old government, the old, quote, liberal government. And soldiers who kill Palestinians are very rarely, even when they're photographs showing killing a Palestinian who had tried to attack an Israeli and got injured in it, uh, he was laying on the ground, he was shot, the guy was re- released. It was against the law, of course, but the law is completely not enforced against U.S. cops have a far more ch- better chance of getting punished in any way from killing a, a black person than Israeli cops are, and police and army and the rest of them, uh, and settlers as well. It's this huge amount of settler violence, and now the settlers are being apparently going to become, and I'm, I'm sure this is going to happen, they're being issued guns before the, the old government did not want settler encampments to have guns, even though they did encourage uprooting of olive trees and all sorts of other attacks on Palestinian agriculturists and villagers. David, am I wrong about everything that I have read? No, all those things are very well documented in the human rights reports. And I think it's essential to say here that Anthony Blinken's trip to Israel and the occupied territories has absolutely nothing to do with changing any of that except perhaps cosmetically. The two-state solution has been dead for years. And when the United States government engages in this rhetoric of, you know, preserving the two-state solution idea, it's a way of just, you know, covering up for the status quo. There is absolutely no intention of putting pressure on Israel to do anything in regard to that except to not make it look quite so blatant. But everything you've said, the things that you've said are well documented and in fact are not new, have been taking place under successive Israeli governments of all stripes. What is new now is the open enabling of uncontrolled settler violence. The settlers are now, if I understand correctly, around half a million. And if you think of that as a voting block in Israeli politics, it makes it, you know, essentially immovable. It's not immovable demographically or physically. It's, it's immovable politically. This is Bill Resnick for the old Mo Variety Hour. I'm talking to David Finkel, the editor of a journal against the current rights on U.S. politics and its machinations to protect and expand its empire, especially in the Middle East. We've discussed Israel as well-earning the designation apartheid state, and things are undoubtedly about to get worse. David and I have compiled a long list of well-documented and visually even Israeli atrocities. One last one, though, that sticks out to me that we haven't talked about, These religious Zionists, many of them revere Jewish terrorists who have Baruch, whatever his last name is. His name was Goldstein. He was the settler from Brooklyn, actually, who carried out the massacre at the Hebron Mass, killing 29 worshippers in Purim 1994. 
Itamar Ben-Gavir, the, the new Israeli you know, minister, until just like a couple years ago, had a poster of Baruch Goldstein in, you know, up, in his, up in his office, considered him a great hero. Yeah, there's a lot, but there's, he's venerated in some places. They have statues mm-hmm. in some areas that revere him. David, you began talking about the Blinken trip and how recently he's the Secretary of State for Biden, that nothing really will change except cosmetically. Maybe maybe the U.S. can force them to become a, a little less murderous and cruel. Especially now that well, I think of children, they can't they can't really shoot all these children. It seems to me, although in Gaza they were killing medics after the protests. But let's talk about the response by the world. But what about the Palestinians? How are they going to respond? Well, there's something that I call a degenerative spiral. That is, the truth of the matter is that, except on the rhetorical level, the Palestinian movement has very, very few real friends. The Arab world, particularly the most repressive dictatorships in the Arab world, that would be Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, are increasingly allied with Israel for their own reasons. And this is where things get a little bit complicated and what Blinken's trip was really about. What Blinken needs to do is to manage the development of relations between Israel and various Arab dictatorships. He needs to make it clear to Israel that Israel cannot unilaterally start a war against Iran. That's not in America's interest. And that Israel will continue to develop its increasingly close and friendly, especially military relations with Arab states. Complicated because the Arab states themselves, like Saudi Arabia, are also reaching out to Iran because they fear the outbreak of a real war with Iran would be devastating to them. So that whole complicated, murky back alley of geopolitics is what Blinken's trip is really about. The rest of it is cosmetics. Just because many of us in the social justice movement care a lot about Palestine, and of course, Palestinians and Palestinian Americans care a lot about Palestine, we sometimes tend to think that the American government and the American political elites must care about Palestine. They don't really. It's a third-rate issue as far as they're concerned. What I believe will happen is that there will be sort of unorganized and relatively fruitless violence inside Israel because one of the problems of the Arab community in Israel, again, not totally unfamiliar to us in this country, is that there are a lot of guns, there's a lot of crime because it's a level of social disorganization, just as we have here in the United States and, you know, poverty and despair. But there is a new generation of Palestinian activism hasn't consolidated in organizational form because it's very, very difficult to do that. But there is a growing momentum, particularly among the younger Palestinian generations, that rejects any attempt to fragment the Palestinian people. That is, they refuse to accept a division between the struggles of the Palestinians under occupation the Palestinian citizens of Israel, and the Palestinians dispersed in various conditions in other countries like Syrian and Lebanese refugee camps, which are really 
the worst kind of situation. They are determined to say this is our struggle, it's one struggle, it's one fight, and that's where the new energy will come from. What does that mean strategically? Well, to get an answer to that, you should talk to some of the Palestinian activists in this country who will be glad to talk about it. But I will say that this is one of the important pillars of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. One of the important points of that struggle is to say the Palestinian people will not be fragmented and separated in such a way that they can be you know, divided and then conquered bit by bit. This is Bill Resnick for the Old Mole Variety Hour. The variety, of course, is in the movements from below that we cover. Talking to David Finkel, the editor of Journal Against the Current, writes on U.S. politics, especially with regard to its imperial ambitions, especially in the Middle East. We've been discussing what the religious Zionists are going to try and do, perhaps, in fact, forced to go a little bit slower. But even if they're replaced in power, what we can expect is a more slow-moving uh, ethnic cleansing. So, David, for uh, Americans who sympathize with the Palestinian cause, and especially those who are seeing themselves as uh, Jewish, what are our responsibilities, and particularly with regard to what are the levers of power? Uh, the BDS movement, which is boycott, divestment, and uh, sanctions, give us a sense of the levers that we can use to uh, embarrass the Israelis and to some extent force them to change. I think they're worried. They're very worried about the critique of Israel by the Jewish people around the world, especially here. It's growing. Right. Well, let me say something about the power of BDS, which is very interesting. Okay. The effect of BDS on the actual Israeli economy is practically nothing, okay? It uh, has had some impact on some American corporations who were involved in some of the worst atrocities of the occupation. So there's a focus on Hewlett-Packard and some others. It doesn't affect the actual Israeli economy, which is built on high-tech and export of military weapons and counterinsurgency technology and all that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting in that regard. Since it does not really impact the Israeli economy, it's very interesting to see how the Israeli government and its supporters are freaked out by BDS. If whole government departments aimed at countering it and criminalizing it and so on. So that says something about the importance of BDS as an educational and organizational tool. So that's the first thing. And to find out more about BDS, just Google it, Boycott Divestment Sanctions, and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find out quite a bit. Secondly, we have to speak out, we should be speaking out, even though it's a minority view, against military aid to Israel, which increased, by the way, enormously under the Obama administration, as much as Obama and Netanyahu hated each other. Nonetheless, U.S. military aid to Israel increased enormously under that administration, which says a lot. And we have to speak out against that and the supplementary appropriations for the Iron Dome. There's a bill in Congress. It kind of sits there. It is introduced by Eddie McCollum from Minnesota. It goes, I don't have the, the, the name of it right now in front of me, but it was called No Way to Treat a Child. This is against the large-scale incarceration of Palestinian children by the Israeli occupation. We also have to speak out in defense of those brave American Congress people who 
speak out for Palestinian rights. For example, there's a vicious attack, particularly vicious attack just now against Elon Omar trying to strip her of her seat on the Foreign Affairs Foreign Relations Committee. And Kevin McCarthy can't do that by fiat because it's a standing committee. It's not a select committee. So he's trying to line up the votes to strip her of her assignment. And we must speak out in defense of Elon Omar. You can certainly Google that. And uh, I also have to say that uh, my own congressional representative, Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, is one of the most outspoken, eloquent, and bravest supporters of Palestinian rights, as well as all social justice causes in this country. So those are some of the things that we need to do. David Finkel, thanks a lot for talking to us. Well, it's been great. Hope your listeners have uh, learned something and will be moved to action.